Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Maybe you want to get a piece of that. Pretty good. I want to talk about sexy teens. I was getting erections. It's a very creepy feeling. I can guarantee that underwear theft will come up again. None of this is relevant. Pokemon, Pokeballs. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. So it is New Year's Day and I am still posting. I managed to carve out time during the holidays to actually make sure I maintain schedule. I am wondering if anyone's actually going to listen to this because the people who are listening to it, I would assume were out doing their New Year's Eve stuff and therefore are probably hung over if they're listening. So it'll be an interesting dynamic, uh, whereas I'm talking to a group of people. Well, I have no idea what you people are like. I, have, I can only make assumptions. And you might all be very quiet individuals who spent your evening perusing novels of Victorian fiction, drinking a, a gentle port. So I, I need to start the new year by apologizing that I, I made assumptions about everyone who listens to this podcast. But I did manage to put some stuff together. It's a bit disorganized because I had to throw it together very last minute. But I had a really interesting revelation. And it was about someone whose career is very long-standing, Chuck Norris. And this is how you want to start your new year. With the first full-on name you hear is Chuck Norris. But you can tell your age or the age of someone else. You can tell someone else's age is better phrased. You can tell someone else's age by what they think Chuck Norris is. Now, I'm old as dirt. So when you say to me, Chuck Norris, just the name, the first thing I think is the guy who fought Bruce Lee. And primarily the hairy guy who fought Bruce Lee. Because in the movie when Chuck Norris fights Bruce Lee, uh, Bruce Lee actually tears off a big chunk of hair from his chest. And it, it, that, that hurts his pride and his manhood. And there is the story of the Bible dude who got his hair cut and then he dies. Is that right? I'm, I have to check with some of my Bible-knowing friends about that. Uh, Delilah? Samson? Is cutting hair, weakness and strength? I don't know. Don't cut your hair if you're a fighter. That's apparently the, the short version of that story. But to me, Chuck Norris is the guy who fought Bruce Lee in a movie and lost. He was basically one of the big boss fights. Now, if you are younger than me by about a decade... You will then think Chuck Norris, action star. He was in a ton of 80s action movies. And they're all terrible, but they're all quite fun because they're, most of them are very much him just going around kicking people in the face and shooting guns and stuff. He's being very, very much 80s action star. Then if you take 10 years off of that, so get 10 years younger, you say Chuck Norris, they should probably think Walker, Texas Ranger. Now, I have never even seen a full episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. I knew it was a thing because it was very popular on the internet. And it was very funny. And it had that story about the kid who got AIDS and he quite abruptly goes around telling everyone. That's a clip on the internet. You'll be able to find that. Actually, let's try to find that right now. I don't you always how you say it in Cherokee. Oh, well, pardon my French, but uh, I'll be damned. <laughs> 
Walker told me I had AIDS. So that there is the sum total of everything I know about Walker, Texas Ranger, is that clip that I've seen about a hundred times on the internet. Now, if you go a little younger than that, so we're, we're gonna have to take it only a few years off, that is when Chuck Norris became an internet meme. So it was like, Chuck Norris doesn't turn on the shower, he stares at it until it starts to cry. Jesus can walk on water. Chuck Norris can swim on land. Chuck Norris's blood type is AK-47. So there's hundreds of these. You go on the internet and you just type in Chuck Norris meme and you'll find hundreds. And it was a big thing on the internet for about a year, maybe year and a half, and then it kind of away. I haven't heard much from Chuck Norris since, but this is the evolution of a career in its relationship to people and how you can now judge the age of people by what they think when you ask them about Chuck Norris. So if you say, who is Chuck Norris or what does he do? They have to answer one of those three or four things and you will then have a sense of the age range of those people. And this has become my sort of social anthropology to understand people and the environment they grew up in. So Cora question. I think hating Trump has become acritical. Like if he repaved a road that was broken, some people would say that it's wrong because he's Trump. Am I wrong? Um, yeah. Because I don't think that's true. Trump has supporters and he has people who are very anti-Trump. And the people who are anti-Trump have very anti-Trump views regardless of what he does. As an outsider, I don't really care as much about Trump. But from what I've seen, he hasn't been doing things like repaving roads. So your example actually is false because he doesn't care about things like basic infrastructure. He hasn't fixed lead poisoned water into houses in Ferguson and uh, apparently several communities around the US. He's not fixing things. He seems to be spending more time breaking the systems that are already in place. And then the other question that you have to ask isn't necessarily is repaving the road the right or wrong thing to do. It would kind of be like, how would he repave the road? Because it seems to me that if he did a good thing, it would be in relation to doing something else that was bad. Basically, if he does something good, he has to fuck something else up or he has to make something by doing something else that would be wrong. So if there is an imbalance to everything he does, if everything that he does that ends up being good somehow creates a negative state somewhere else, then that is the wrong thing for a politician to do. The sum total of a politician, and then this is going to blow everyone's mind, is they should actually be trying to do good things across the board for their country. Now, I may not even agree with those things, but that should be the absolute goal of a politician, to do good things for the country they live in, the country they serve. But I think the problem with Trump is that that doesn't seem to be his actual goal. He seems to be serving himself in a small select group of associates. He doesn't seem to be serving the country as a whole. And the secondary thing is if you cannot be critical of your politicians, you've fallen into a different problem, a problem where the state now cannot be criticized at all. So yes, he's receiving a lot of criticism, but it's probably because he's so divisive in his actions. I actually think Hillary Clinton would have had the similar problems because I think people would have been so opposed to her being president as well. So I think a lot of the criticism comes from the fact that he hasn't been doing things like repaving roads and he has been doing a lot of things that sort of mess up life for other people. Also, when I'm recording this, you are in the midst of a government shutdown because he didn't get funding for the wall. And the big question, I can't believe no one's actually said this. When he says, I want $5 billion to build the wall, no one looks at him and says, didn't you say Mexico was gonna pay for it? Why aren't you speaking to the Mexicans?
because his promise was that the American people would never pay for that wall in the first place. Your government has been shut down because he hasn't gotten the money for the wall from America, the place he was never supposed to get the money from in the beginning, from his own actual statements. That seems to have dropped off the narrative completely, which I can't believe no one's brought back. All they should say when he brings up funding for the wall is go talk to Mexico. Mexico is going to pay for it. You are going to get Mexico to pay for it. Get on that right now and you'll have your wall tomorrow as soon as Mexico is paying for Core question, is it possible to guess someone's intelligence from their speech patterns? I've talked about this a bunch of times on the podcast. I think, yes, smarter people will have more complexity of their language. I think that is true. But I think a lot of people fake complexity of their language to appear intelligent. I think really, really smart people actually focus on being communicative, using language that is level appropriate for the people they're talking to so they can communicate well. You see a lot of the time on the internet, people who spend a lot of time sort of memorizing words from the dictionary, trying to create a false diction that is to create a false impression of their false intelligence. Whereas someone who's really smart probably is using more simple language overall. They know all these other words, but they're choosing the appropriate words for who they're talking to. So if they're talking to someone who does have a high level vocabulary, they might choose higher level words that are more appropriate. Or if they're speaking to someone who has a lower level vocabulary, they'll choose words that are appropriate for them. I did get into the comments a little bit and I started looking at what was voted as the best answer and it has the person's name, which I'm not going to say, but the way they described themselves was exceptionally to profoundly gifted amateur scientist. Now, I can't tell if this person's intelligent, but this does lead me to guess that I can tell if someone's choice of language or description about themselves would lead me to believe that they would annoy the shit out of me. Over the holidays, I was watching a lot of comedy specials because they're an hour long and they fit into sort of those odd bits of the day when you don't know what to do yourself and you're about to do something else or you need to come back. And you can always cut them off and come back later. So that was one of the nice things. I accidentally found that Ricky Gervais and Russell Brand in two of their fairly recent comedy specials made the exact same set of jokes about airplanes. So first, they were making fun of the crash position, how getting into that squat position where you, you leave your put your head down and put your hands over the back of your head uh, won't save you should you crash into the ocean or a mountain, which is probably true. Uh, and then they go on to make fun of the whistle. So you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you have a little whistle and you go, and in both cases, they kind of made the same basic joke, like who's going to hear you out there? Uh, they did use slightly different whistle tones, which I found interesting. Now I'm wondering if they have seen each other's comedy specials or if this has been pointed out before, because I'm betting a lot of people don't watch. I watched about seven or eight comedy specials over the last couple of days because I had these like weird hours where I had to wait or not do stuff or wait for something else. It led me to think about the things I know about airplanes. I had a student who was an engineer and he taught me a lot about airplanes and he taught me specifically about the death zone and two of the scariest things about airplanes. So if you aren't in an airplane, all the fuel is basically kept in the wings or around that area because it has to be pumped out to the engines which are on the wings. Now, if you look at the wings, you could create a box. So if you drew a line from one wing to the other through the cabin and then the front and the back of the wing, you'd have a square, which is the middle of the airplane, usually. He explained this and he drew that picture for me and then he put an X from one corner of the box to the other and in that X, he said that was the death zone. If there is an explosion on an airplane, everyone in this area dies, no question. So there's people in front of that 
who may survive because that part of the airplane might get blasted off or it might still be on the ground. Uh, the explosion might cut it loose. And there's people at the end of the airplane, the tail end of the airplane, and that also might happen for them. But the people who are in the middle are basically sitting in a zone where they're all going to die. Then he started talking about like dangerous things on airplanes. So what do you think is the most dangerous thing on an airplane? And I was talking about a whole bunch of just random ideas, of course, because I don't really know anything about airplanes at all. And he said, for him, as someone who dealed primarily with wires, one of the things he was most worried about was orange juice. Because when you spill orange juice on an airplane, it gets into the carpet and you can't suck it out again. And so that just sits there and it gets down into the crevices and cracks and it's acidic. And what it does is it eats away at the covers of the wires. Now you eat away at enough of the cover of the wire, it sort of splits. And then it creates what they called an arc event. And an arc event is like a little lash of electricity uh, that could cut other wires. And that could actually down an airplane. So he, if he was going to make a rule, would actually make a rule that you cannot have orange juice on airplanes. Now this led me to remember something, completely different story, completely unrelated to my friend. Uh, but it was about airplanes in World War II, primarily bombers. And they would return from bombing runs and they would have big holes in them because, you know, the enemies were shooting up at the airplanes trying to put holes in them. I believe this was the British military, but it could have been the Americans. It's not really relevant. Although it should be, we should probably go find the guy's name. But I can tell you the story. I can't really tell you the guy's name. But this is an example of lateral thinking that I found really impressive. So the people repairing the airplanes were looking at the holes and go, we should reinforce these points on the airplane. And this other engineer is like, no, we need to reinforce the parts that are not hit on the airplanes so they are stronger. And everyone's like, why? You can see the airplane has a hole here, here, and here, and it doesn't have a hole where you want to reinforce it. He goes, yes, all the airplanes that have holes in the area that I'm talking about never returned from flight. So obviously getting hit there creates enough of a problem for the airplane that it goes down. Whereas these other holes, the airplane is still capable of returning. So it's still capable of flying. So we don't really have to worry about that if it gets a hole there because the crew, the airplane can still get back. Whereas if it gets a hole in these other places where we've never seen a hole before, that's what actually causes the airplanes to go down. So they started reinforcing those areas where they had never seen a hole before and that actually increased the amount of airplanes that could survive these runs. And I don't know why, but that moment of thought was really impressive to me personally, because I could never probably make that leap of logic. And it is so clearly obvious when you actually think about it. When you have it explained to you, it's, it's evident that, of course, you never see the hole in the airplane that went down because that no one never comes back. The relation of that story to the guy I'm talking to before is that I asked him if he could fly in every, any airplane, any type of airplane, what would he choose? And he, he said right away he would choose military airplanes because military airplanes aren't designed for creature comforts. They aren't designed to make you comfortable in any way. They are designed to stay in the air. If you put a hole in a military airplane, it's actually very possible that it's going to keep flying. So it might be terribly uncomfortable for you. You might not be able to breathe, but at least the airplane will stay in the air when it's supposed to stay in the air. Whereas a commercial jet, you put a hole in it and the thing's probably going to go straight down. 
And the other thing you have to remember is that dismal as air traffic might be, as flying might be for hours and hours and hours in cramped spaces, they're actually designed to be comfortable for human beings, which is a bit hard to believe, but it is actually true. Like the seats have cushions, uh, they try to keep it at a fairly ambient temperature, uh, they give you food and stuff. Military planes don't necessarily have to do any of that. They could give you a bench and tell you to shut up and sit on it, because the only thing they care about is keeping that plane in the air. So yeah, I can't, no conclusions. I gotta work on conclusions maybe, or tying it all together. But when you see a problem, it is actually worth taking a moment and seeing and trying to think, which part of the problem am I not seeing and is that actually the solution? The Loss of, 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 the Loss of Podcast. The Loss of Podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. Oh, and a Happy New Year.